G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this cannot happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact. We're going to talk to a former master's students of ours who is also now working at Queen's since uh, doing her master's. So I'd like to introduce you to Kayla Dettinger who completed her Master of Arts of History under the supervision of Dr Sandra Donotta and is now working with University Relations. So welcome to Grad Chat Kayla. Hi Colette, thank you so much for having me. It's such an interesting experience to be working with you in this capacity. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now actually I first met Kayla a couple of years ago when she participated in the three minute thesis competition, yes, did, yeah. which we've just ran recently as well. So how do you actually find that? Did you enjoy it? I thought I, I really enjoyed it actually. Um, it was a good experience to have to kind of take my head out of my thesis and sort of think about how the public would be interested in my thesis and sort of what were the opportunities that I could make a sort of compelling argument that this project, which is interesting because of how it intersects with some really big events in British history, but how the project was interesting for itself right. and how it had it still had tangible effects and ramifications today that would make somebody interested in hearing about it. And we did. We were interested in hearing <laughs> about it. So without further ado, as they say, so your research topic was the history of the UK charity the Pilgrim Trust from 1930 to 1960 and its efforts to come to the rescue of the things that mattered in our country as a self-defined salvage core. Yes, so those are uh, a few quotes that I pulled right from the policy document right. that was part of their um, part of their sort of um, foundational document. And so really it's a really interesting topic in that it's kind of almost hard to explain because um, yes because yes, what is the Pilgrim Trust right so the Pilgrim Trust is a charity that's still in operation today but they were founded in 1930 and so I looked at them between 1930 and 1960 and it was sort of arbitrary dates in the way that I ended it but at some point I had to end it because the thesis yes. was only supposed to be 100 pages um, and it was actually much closer to 180 pages so oh my, oh my goodness I <laughs> so, think even one yes. would be enough for me exactly Exactly. So uh, don't follow my example. But so the Pilgrim Trust was founded in 1930, and it was funded by a man named Edward Harkness, who was a really prominent American philanthropist. And so he decided that he wanted to sort of give back to Great Britain as part of his sort of ancestral roots. Okay. And so he allocated two million pounds to form what was called the Pilgrim Trust. And so he kind of rounded up some of his friends, and then who they founded <laughs> up some of their, their friends, um, and it became the Pilgrim Trust. And so you had extremely notable names as part of the trustees. The first chairman was Stanley Baldwin in between his stints as prime minister of Great Britain. And you had um, really sort of round uh, civil servants. So Thomas Jones, who served under four prime ministers, was its first secretary. Um, And there's even sort of a Canadian connection because uh, John Buchan, whose collection and memoirs we have actually at Queen's University Archives, yes, he was one of the governor generals of Canada. And so he was actually a pilgrim trustee before he took the position in Canada. So you had a a small, tight-knit group of men who were all sort of at the upper echelons of society. You had politicians and lords and civil servants and 
and they were all sort of part of a, a network of philanthropy that I kind of discover in my work is that you had a lot of the same men um, making a lot of decisions for the country through various different philanthropic endeavors. So that wasn't really for charity then. <laughs> oh no, it definitely was for charity, and they took their they took their their work extremely seriously, right. and it definitely that's why I sort of pull those quotes to talk about you know the things that mattered in our country and mm -hmm. as a salvage corps because for them they wanted to use the Pilgrim Trust as sort of a, a vehicle to rescue the things that weren't being addressed. So they really wanted to fill sort of a niche in the philanthropic sector. Can you give us some examples? Yes. So that's sort of why my thesis was so long is because <laughs> they really took those 30 years to figure out what they wanted to do. Right. And so I also consider um, the history of the Pilgrim Trust to sort of be a history of Britain itself as okay, well. Gosh. Because they started in 1930 actually to address the ramifications of the First World War. So mm. you had a generation of lost men, you had a lot of people experiencing an economic depression, which only became worse as right. time went on in the 1930s. And so you had this group of men considering how can we make a difference in the, mm -hmm. in the philanthropic sector. So the first decade or so was really focused on social welfare, the ideas about employment schemes, how can we get people back to work, how can we train people, okay. and they really sort of did that alongside the rise of the social sciences as a field of study. And so one of the first major initiatives that they funded was something called Men Without Work, which oh. was a sort of groundbreaking study at the time that looked at sort of the unemployment crisis in Great Britain. And it really is important to our understandings of citizenship and community community at the time okay. and what it meant to be a man unemployed or a right. woman unemployed at the time and sort of its um, applications with citizenship and what is community when you're unemployed and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So that was the 1930s. And then, of course, the Second World War breaks out and they come up to this need to want to address the home front to that they saw that there was a lot of sort of opportunities for them to shift a little bit and that they felt that along with the entire voluntary sector, really, that they had to address the Second World War. And so they did a couple different things with the home front. They did fund a lot of um, sort of book giving operations. So they would have uh, sort of these rotating libraries that would be okay. funded throughout the UK right. for soldiers stationed in Great Britain. But their main thing is that they really endeavored in some partnerships with the state to start on what I consider to be their most prominent theme is um, countryside preservation. So they funded the precursor to the Arts Council of Great Britain. Fantastic. And which the state later assumed in its control. So they funded a lot of pictorial records and so they had a lot of volumes and they looked at the idea of preservation within a national context. So you had a book about England, you had a book about Scotland, right. and you had a book about Ireland, and through Ulster. And so you had varying degrees of success in the publication of those of those volumes, which is sort of an interesting chapter in itself. Yeah. And so in there, they really sort of play with the idea of what is the nation, right? They were funded to address the needs of Great Britain and Ireland, but yet they sort of operated within these kind of national silos, all for the purpose of Great Britain, though. So was it looking at Great Britain in terms of how we need to keep together and be strong, etc., or is it this is what our country was about? And we need to try and keep that. Sort of the second. So it was, right. so the, a lot of the images that they captured were of churches, were of the town square, of really beautiful, picturesque countrysides. And right. that's kind of how I tie into my 3MT discussion yes. is where do we get this idea that England is this pastoral land and green and lush right. and, you know, of the countryside and of, of the Downton Abbeys of the world, yes. right? And so I think the Pilgrim Trust definitely had a strong hand to play in preserving that, that image of the nation. Right. So that was sort of the beginning of that. 
that. And that was in the second, that was from 1939 to 1945. And then that comes into the sort of the third theme of my, of my thesis is looking at them in the post-war period. And so now with the welfare state emerging with the labor government, there was less of a need for the voluntary sector to to engage in the ways that they had before, because now unemployment relief was sponsored by the government. Right. And so they had to kind of create a new identity. Right. And so they really maintained this idea of going into heritage preservation, which they called countryside preservation. And it was also an interesting time for them because it was sort of a changing of the guard, if you will. A lot of the original trustees had stepped down by the end of the Second World War, and they were looking for sort of fresh blood. They were still nobles and politicians (laughs) and lawyers, but but younger. And they, but they still were very much interested in keeping the theme of the first set of trustees. And there was still a lingering presence. Thomas Jones, who was originally its secretary, later became the chairman himself, right? Right, right. So, and so they were really dedicated to looking at the countryside. And so what I did with my, I think it's my fourth chapter, <laughs> is I looked at their ecclesiastical preservation. Because okay. it's, it's sort of a topic that isn't as well documented in the historiography as how did they go about in, in preserving these beautiful ecclesiastical churches. Yes. And so what I uncovered is that they were actually quite involved in uh, sort of these behind the scenes partnerships with the Church of England. And they had a very extensive uh, communications with the archbishops um, about what they were trying to do. And these kind of pressure points that they would actually give the archbishop about the need to preserve now and what that looked like and um, how to decide what to what to preserve and so they really a treasure trove an archive of ecclesiastical preservation because they were looking at murals they were looking at statues they were looking at architecture and so it was a lot of um and even stained glass would they stained glass glass? yes (laughs) (laughs) but i do still have the art i I have copies of the archive so it's definitely a project i wish to go back to but yes so their involvement with ecclesiastical School preservation was absolutely astounding and the level of involvement that they had to the point that when I was doing my research in England, I could point out and be like, oh yeah, the Pilgrim you Trust helped this. erect this statue or make sure that this wing and such and such church would be when, solid. When you were going around, do people, do the Peter, people of Britain realise how much the Pilgrim Trust did? That's a good question. So I'd say at the time, the Pilgrim Trust liked to sort of operate in the background. They did like praise. I mean, who Yes. And they definitely kept uh, every sort of every newspaper article that they were mentioned in, either them or their trustees, they kept it, which was fantastic. It's sort of an interesting way to see how they perceived of themselves within their own archive. Mm -hmm. And so they, of course appreciated appreciation but i'd say that they they preferred to be sort of behind the scenes they did a lot of collaboration with various other charities and voluntary sector members and they while they would promote that sort of internally they were very much willing to let those charities kind of take take the helm take the reins on that so i mean that there are a few plaques every once in a while you come across that you know do say a donation of the pilgrim trust or that sort of thing and they did have a very lengthy debate over you know what does that look like what does that plaque look like what does oh, really? our check look like what is our what is our what is our brand <laughs> <laughs> but i'd say that england is probably aware but i don't know if it's a name that unless you're sort of really into either history. heritage preservation or history 
you might not know of the Pilgrim Trust in that because, way. Because, I mean, that's the one side that's probably easier to be kept, mm-hmm. the, the historical preservation, as yeah. opposed to what they did in the beginning after the First World War mm-hmm. with some of their social programming and things for yes. the, yeah. the returned man. Yes, yeah, so exactly. If you're, a, if you're a historian of social sciences mm-hmm. or sort of those kind of fields, then you do know because it was sort of a, a great monumental study at the time. But even the Pilgrim Trust itself today, which I'm not quite an expert on them today, but I know that they have really morphed and they're looking into more of seed funding and community-based funding. Even that sort of original motivation, um, they continue to morph and they continue to react to the needs of the country at the time. Brilliant. Yeah. And you did all that in a two-year program. Yeah. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Thank you. So what was the research experience like for you then? Oh, the research experience was absolutely fantastic. I cannot praise Queen's enough for what I think is probably one of the best experiences I've ever, I ever could have had in my graduate work. Coming to Queen's was a, a huge decision, as it is for, I imagine, most people coming, moving <laughs> yes. to Kingston. But with Queen's, the first person I have to obviously thank is my supervisor, Dr. Sandra Den Otter. She, um, I cannot sing her praises enough. Right. I think anybody who has... Think, exactly. Think, yes, a lot of people would... Exactly. Anybody who has had her as a supervisor is probably her biggest fan. So, and I'm always so kind of jealous in a way for people who are going to get to start with her because it's kind of starting that whole journey all over again. (laughs) And actually, I get to sort of continue to maintain that relationship in my staff role as well, which is fantastic. That mentorship has kind of morphed in a way. But yes, so she was instrumental to creating a sense of community at Queen's for me among the other British students. And she was instrumental in really helping me craft these research partnerships. So at Queen's, which is sort of a a large reason, reason why I came to Queen's as well, is that I have was offered a Canada Graduate Scholarship from Shirk. Right. Um, and I was doubly fortunate in that I successfully competed for the Michael Smith Foreign Supplement. Fantastic. And so that was also Dr. Donauder kind of reaching out to her research network as well and seeing who would be willing to, you know, sort of supervise me abroad as kind of the term that Shirk right. uses. Um, and so I was able to luckily find a supervisor, Professor Jerry White at Birkbeck College, University of London. And so he became my uh, abroad supervisor. And so for three months, months I got to live in the UK um, in London zone two <laughs> took the tube every day and it was wonderful and I mean it was it was an experience that I, it was one thing to to research every day which I was it was so fortunate that the London Metropolitan Archives really just kind of opened their doors to me fantastic um, and I was there like, every day for three months they probably thought who is this person <laughs> what's like, with these Canadians exactly they're like you must be an American I don't know <laughs> so to, it was one thing to kind of you know be in that archive every day um during you know archival hours like 10 to but then to go out into London yeah. where their involvement is so heavily there, so heavily present without, but you have to kind of know about them to be able yes. to spot it. So it was kind of like seeing it all over again, which was really interesting because so much of their heritage preservation is, is kind of thinking about how are people going to experience this heritage and like right. what do we want them to, to get out of this experience. Yeah. And I, I saw it. I saw this kind of nostalgic view and this insular sort of Great Britain. And so that was really fantastic. And I mean, it was, and so for the way that my research, I think, has an impact at, at Queen's is that I was able to kind of create this interesting voluntary sector layer of history that right. I, I still hope to publish. So right. <laughs> when I have some free time, <laughs> is that uh, I think that there's a real contribution to that and to thinking about these major events like the Second World War and post-war Britain and the way that the voluntary sector was still very prominent in helping shape those pivotal moments. So with that then, I mean, because you obviously got some great opportunities during your, doing your MA. So what skills or experiences from your MA have you transitioned into your role 
at university relations. Yes. So that's an important one. A lot of people say, what can I do with a graduate degree other than continue on in research? Exactly. And that was a thing that once I had decided to not pursue the PhD, it was a question of what what do I do? Mm-hmm. And how do I get any sort of these skills to kind of fill in any gaps that I thought I might have? But I find that working in communication, so my, my role is the research promotion coordinator in university relations, but it falls under the umbrella of integrated communications in the portfolio. Okay. And so it's really a very heavily communications driven position. And so that's communications, that's writing, that's speaking, that's uh, a lot of research too as well, sort of in a different capacity. It's right. researching our researchers, <laughs> researching opportunities <laughs> for our researchers. And so really what I'd say it translates most into is being able to speak well about knowledge mobilization and translation. Right. And so that's how can we help our researchers speak to the public in a way that the public is both informed and is not sort of receiving a, a sort of an abbreviated version that they are right. also getting the research at its most important value as well. And so that's kind of helping to facilitate a few different opportunities, which I can discuss later that we do. <laughs> Make a few plugs for university relations. Let's so say knowledge mobilization and translation. How can we communicate the, the amazing groundbreaking research happening at Queen's? And right. that's at all levels. Right. We um, mainly work with faculty researchers, but I mean, graduate students are always very well placed and, and post, especially postdoctoral fellows and postdoctoral and, fellows and undergraduate researchers mm-hmm. as well we like to we, we try to profile as well and it's a great opportunity to work with our faculty partners so this a little plug for colette and rebecca at sgs <laughs> and and being able to collaborate with our faculty partners is phenomenal because right. it's all as my associate vice principal would say it's all the big house of q it is the big house of q <laughs> and so being able to use research promotion as a way to uh, reach our strategic strategic driver of research prominence for right. the university is an amazing opportunity. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, you actually did the three-minute thesis. So mm-hmm. you already were thinking about how, you know, how can I get my work out there other than to the people who uh, you're going to have to defend your thesis exactly. to. Yeah. Things. I mean, outside the broader historical community, how else can we get other people to understand what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, yes, your new role, which, okay, so you kind of alluded a little yes. bit to it. Your role at university relations, your portfolio and your position. Why did you want to go to that position? And how are you finding that position? What are you, Ooh. apart from the fact that you're, you're talking, you're having an opportunity to help with the research across the big house of Q. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Helen? Yes. <laughs> It's a plug for Helen. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, first I kind of have to explain a little bit about university relations. So the office, Well, that's true, actually. Yes. yes. Uh, so the Office of the Vice Principal of University Relations is a, a really sort of fantastic place to be at in the Queen's University structure, just because of how so many of the strategic drivers and initiatives and goals of the institution align with mm-hmm. what the portfolio is wanting to do as well. So in a sort of kind of boiled down umbrella explanation... Uh, University relations is one of its goals and priorities is dedicated to maintaining and building stakeholder relations, both internally to Queens and externally to Queens. And so that's how you have government and institutional relations in the portfolio and integrated communications in the portfolio. So it's a really amazing opportunity to kind of be right at the sort of cross of the university, but yet also have a fantastic opportunity again to reach out to our 
our faculty sponsors, yes. our faculty partners, um, and being able to collaborate so frequently. And I mean, to learn about the research happening at Queen's. <laughs> well, see, that's what I find fascinating, yes. just even doing grad chat, because I do get to hear about what our grad students and postdoctoral fellows are doing exactly. across the board, across yes. all disciplines. And it is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And half the time you wouldn't know no. all the research that's going on. And we, I think it's great that you got this position now, because this is an opportunity for Queen's with the... With, you know, I know they've been changing things around a little bit, but for us to really step up and showcase the research that's being yes. done here across the board. And I think that's a good segue to kind of give a plug about what, what we offer at University Relations. So my associate director, Melinda Knox, and I, so we sort of head the research promotion uh, portfolio of yes. University Relations. And so I'd say that my position is kind of um, sort of twofold. So there's an internal component that feeds directly into the external component. And so the internal is being able to facilitate programs like Blind Date with Knowledge, which yes, is our research which is another show. CFRC fantastic program. And thanks to CFRC yeah. <laughs> and to our community host, Barry Kaplan. We also have their Art of Research Photo Contest, yes, which, which is, um, is so fantastic. And the way that the amount of, of photos that we receive, the reception that we have, and it showcases the amazing groundbreaking research happening from undergraduates to faculty research and, ev- and everybody in between, and including alumni as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's 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 difficult to actually be able to choose, you know, the winners. And so people's choice is open right now. But, I know, uh, and I, I've already <laughs> voted, and, and I was really disappointed I can only have one vote. Only one vote. <laughs> and that was really hard. I go, there's so many great, I mean, I've been a bit biased looking at the grad student yeah. ones, but. Exactly, right. Even with the people's choice, it was, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, how do I vote for this, exactly. right? So that's another opportunity we have. And then that turns into a lot of different sort of um, applications of that as part of an integrated campaign, right? So um, those photos with credit appear in several of our brochures that go out to our external stakeholders. They are in that pop-up exhibit, which we take all around campus. Which uh, school graduate studies have used a few times, which is really handy to have. (laughs) Why go and pay for it myself out of my budget? I'm just going to use yours. And they're beautiful. They're absolutely stunning. And then so another uh, opportunity that we facilitate is The Conversation, which is the digital news site. Which is fantastic. Which publishes exclusive university related uh, researcher op-eds and so that is you know from graduate studies to the faculty researcher to the postdoc as well and that's an amazing opportunity to hear those I know our students who have been on it or who had articles published in it have just loved the opportunity and the support that they've had to help create that editorial and it goes it goes so far and one of our most far-reaching articles is actually about two graduate students and their work on road salt right and I mean I think they ended up being interviewed on TV for that. It was, it was republished several different places. And that's, that's the great thing about the conversation is that you write once. Yes. And, uh, you know, just all viral. the various... It goes viral. Exactly. It goes viral. So that's a wonderful opportunity as well. And then, so the last thing that I'd... Well, that's never really an end to it all. But <laughs> one of the other initiatives <laughs> is the research website, which is coming soon. I'm really looking forward to that. Yes. And so that's kind of a house, sort of a way that we can house all of these initiatives in one and be able to also um, promote our the work of our faculty partners as well. Well, Grad Chat's going to have a nice little plug on that website. <laughs> <laughs> and then so that's a way to speak to our external audiences as well and to showcase really the beauty of the research happening at Queen's. And so that kind of feeds into the external sort of component of my of my mm-hmm. job as well, which is helping the university speak about the research happening at the institution right. to some of our external stakeholders. And so I'd say like the best example is the the recent uh, Shirk announcement that we had. Yes. With the Honourable yes. Minister Kirsty Duncan That was came, brilliant. The president of Shirk came and that 
was a wonderful opportunity to be able to host a national announcement about millions of dollars in Shirk funding and to have our Shirk winners in the audience as well to be able to showcase, you know, how Queen's is uh, a catalyst for research. That was a wonderful opportunity to do that as well. And it was great. I went to that event and it was great. Yes. It was great. Which is why I think, um, not just with that, but you mentioned with the website, I think it's long overdue that Queen's has had a website specific to research Mm -hmm. across the board because we've all got our own sections of research on our various websites, whether it's a faculty website or school of graduate studies and even big Queen's a little bit. But to have one central one is really, really important. Yes, and I'd say that, again, it really builds on the work that's already happening Mm -hmm. and already been done with research in in the faculties as well. So it's really just a way to kind of package it all so that there's sort of one vehicle that if, you know, we really have a government stakeholder or an industry stakeholder looking for that information they're right there and then it but it also doesn't replace what the faculties are doing as well no we still need to sort of promote what's within our own area but it's a part of that whole cross promotion that we i think we're doing very well you are you are lots of meetings yes lots of meetings but lots (laughs) of opportunities to also really understand what what the other faculties are doing Mm -hmm. and how we can help and how they can help us and it's all about again that big house of q yeah it's and sharing around I, i mean when you go out into the community and you talk to people and they realise you're from Queens and you're working in a research area, mm-hmm. they go, oh, what, you know, what's going on? Because people are interested yes. in what our students and faculty and postdocs are doing. Of course. But we've just got to get it out there. Yes. And I think it's this is all, I mean, a fantastic start. And I can't wait to see how that really morphs because, mm-hmm. you know, we with this research website, like, I think you know like sky's the limits right well, like absolutely exactly so what's what are we going to have on it next yeah, right well, i mean so. even some of the events that you've been talking about um, you know where we, we can highlight certain special oh, events yes. that, are, yeah. that are going on i think that's that's awesome and those are awesome because they always kind of happen where i think i'll joke about this with my associate director is that every time we get a little bit of a lull every time we kind of yes. get into a little bit of a pattern a little bit of a you know a regular work day all of a sudden we get a notice about mm-hmm. that queens has this fantastic opportunity which of course course we need to jump on but then you kind of have to uh you know just do it you drop everything and you make it happen right and but it always is so wonderful because we get to you know highlight our researchers and our graduate students get to speak you can get a good buzz from it can't and you? get a great buzz i mean we got to highlight our conservation laboratory yes. and i mean like what a fantastic opportunity to take the minister to probably a lab that she's never been in before exactly and showcase the only art conservation program in canada exactly. right so and it's awesome i love going into it's that it's awesome yeah i love it. So you clearly enjoy your job. So oh, yeah. You, so, you, so your transition <laughs> from masters to the workforce has not been difficult for you. I mean, it was a little interesting to come onto campus not for work. I mean, right. that was always a little, a little interesting. But I'm glad to be back. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. So I was very fortunate to work at the Ministry of Health and Long Term Care over the summer. Okay. And then this opportunity came out to come back to Queens as a staff member, and I thought, like, what? Like, that's so incredible. I mean, Queens has given me so much and I've been so fortunate in my academic career here that I thought like how could I not go back how could I not <laughs> give back a little bit I I, I kind of have this this sort of funky way of thinking that um, a lot of the scholarships that I've been so fortunate to win is a, is an investment right, right. and it's a public right. investment and I want to give that back as much as possible so I mean working for the university is fantastic but I think one of the things that's interesting as a grad student trying to find out what other funding is is available to you, okay. not just relying yeah. on the big tri-council grants such as the SHRC, the NSERC and the CIHR. 
that. But there's a lot of other ones. Like you said, you had the Michael Smith. No, what was it called? Oh, yeah. So that was part of Shirk too, the Michael Smith foreign supplement. Oh, right. But yes. it's a little bit different little to bit the different. usual like um, graduate council scholarships yes. and things like that. So, you know, I think it's really important that we find ways of getting our students to look themselves as well as, I mean, the faculty should be looking for them too. Mm-hmm. But what other grants are available out there to help them do their research and be able to spend time on their research? Yes. And that's really kind of a make it or break it for some graduate students mm-hmm. too, is that to have the funding is important to for them to be able to dedicate that amount of time that they need, right? And I, I'd say that I am extremely privileged for the amount of funding that I did have. And the, mo- the bulk of it did come from Shirk. So with the Michael Smith is that you had to win the Canada Graduate Scholarship first, and then okay. you were able to apply to the Michael Smith. That's right. sort of a smaller pool of applicants and fewer scholarships available at Queen's. But, but they alerted you to that. That or, was actually, uh, I think it was a notice that we received from uh, Monica Corbett. Oh, actually. okay. Yeah. Oh, our office. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so that as a winner, this was another opportunity. Right. And so I just applied. I mean, it was a it was a huge kind of gamble. It usually goes to PhDs, which kind of makes a lot of sense that you would need three months to right. do because you have to go for three months, at least three months. So it makes sense that a PhD would need it. But I got you a got notice it. from Shirk that I so wanted. So you obviously had the right proposal, but at the guess, same yeah. time, a topic that interested them that something be a bit different. I think so. And I think I think that having all sort of the logistics in place too mm-hmm. that you know we had of course there were requirements to you know having the abroad supervisor in place and all those sorts of things but having that game plan ready knowing that I wanted to see this collection and I wanted to go to this archive and this was going to be relevant and I was going right. to present at this conference while I was there really made it kind of a, a safer investment if you will. So as going back again as you're as a grad student you obviously went out of your way to try and find other things to be able to do what else did you do during your grad life other than your research to help you prepare you for the future? So that was kind of an interesting question. And looking back at what I what I did in preparation for this interview, I was like, oh, I sounded a lot better on paper. <laughs> like, oh, wow, how did I manage it all? Um, but no, <laughs> at Queen's, and particularly with my supervisor, I did the second year program. I did the two-year program, program in history. Mm-hmm. So the first year is dedicated to coursework, and the second year is really supposed to be dedicated to your thesis. But mm-hmm. it's for me, it was kind of like, what do you want to what do you want to get out of that second year, yes. right? And so that was uh, in consultation with my supervisor. That was sort of a, a year that I wanted to get as much as I possibly could out of being a student. Right. And so you'll see, um, I have it listed here. I did the, uh, the Expanding Horizons certificate, which was wonderful. And I saw that no- knowledge mobilization and translation yes. is a key thing with storytelling. Yes. So you're already <laughs> training graduate students to think that way. I sat on the SGPS. I was one of the GHSA executives. So that's the Graduate History Student Association. I did various conferences, both graduate and professional conferences. That's good. And I did a couple sort of community volunteering aspects as well. And so that was all sort of a way that I tried to kind of gain a little bit of experience outside of the classroom. So trying to... Networking is hard. It is is hard. Um, And those of us who are really shy. And yeah, and I'm an introvert. (laughs) (laughs) And networking is hard, but it takes practice, right? And so, you know, learning how to network, thinking about seeing, thinking about academics um, from that other side of the coin is also Mm -hmm. useful too, right? And, And trying to get a couple skills that I didn't have. So, you know, I had the communications, had the writing, had the presentation skills, but, you know, like, where are my business skills? Where are sort of those But um, you, But you ones? clearly did that in your extracurriculars during your studies. I so. Because, I mean, <laughs> charity gala planning, so there's your event.
event work and you're doing event work now you know yeah. you're having to organize whether it's receptions or anything else or, yeah so that or, was or really a so useful experience with so that that's good and that's kind Networking. of a plug yes and that was sort of a plug i wanted to make for my my one of my best friends so dina maria udo uh, so we're both from windsor and she wanted to put on this gala but she lives with scleroderma which is uh, an autoimmune disease okay. and she thought um she wanted to kind of kick it in the butt and she's <laughs> like what can i possibly do to you know, make a change in this right. and so she decided to put on this gala and neither of us had any gala experience and so she did a, so much of the logistics work from her and she partnered with Skeleturma Society of Ontario and I tried to help as best I could in Kingston and then we kind of met together in Windsor and sort of really sort of um, executed it out that week but do you know how much she raised Colette? No. She raised $26,000. That's amazing. $26,000. Fantastic. And no gala experience before and I mean, it was such a story about how the community just rallied for her, mm-hmm. the business community in Windsor, right. the Italian community in Windsor, and she raised $26,000. Like, that's fantastic. It was fantastic. So that's my little plug for Dina. <laughs> I hope she's doing well. She is doing fantastic. Good, so good. that's good. So that was a, also a great experience that she let me kind of be involved in that. Yeah, and that's good to be able to see what you can Put yourself what you can do yourself you, yeah. even if you haven't done it before experience it feel like feel out whether you know this is something i would like to do down the track or not or yeah. no way i'm ever going to do that again or you know that was really interesting to be able to do that yeah um, and clearly in your new role you're getting to do a bit of everything you're getting to do your yes, research you're getting to do your everything. networking <laughs> you're getting to do your events yeah um, it's kind you, of new commun- every day. Your yeah. community relations. So you're actually bringing it all together, aren't you? I try. I try to strive to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're. Su- um, I think you're succeeding. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> so, Kyle, we're going to have to call it quits. Sure. Yep. Because um, unfortunately, we've only got 29 minutes. <laughs> I know. I've kept you over. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. It's not a problem. I'm always going over it on the time. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was great listening about your research again, and best of luck with your role at yes, university you. relations you're clearly enjoying it yes. so that's fantastic <laughs> that's what i always say you, you've got to enjoy wherever you work you've got to enjoy it so um, i'm glad that you are enjoying it thank you and it's great to have you there for as a resource for us too here at the school of graduate studies yeah <laughs> always an advocate <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download this, this show tomorrow from either itunes soundcloud google podcast or stitcher just type in grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.